At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Primary Election Day turned into Primary Election Week as vote counting continued, but with runoffs and the November election looming, the scramble to fix this week's mess is on. The surviving campaigns check the numbers and plan for more battle, while the battle against the coronavirus is hardly over and those numbers could change everything again, even as the legislature returns to try to figure out how much money the state has to spend. We'll look into all of it in this edition of The Political Breakfast. Happy to have you along. I'm Dennis O'Hare. We're joined again by Republican strategist Brian Robinson and Democratic strategist Theron Johnson. Gentlemen, welcome back. Good to be back. Hey, Dennis. Georgia House Speaker David Ralston announced that he will have the House Governmental Affairs Committee now look into the delays, the long lines, and the equipment malfunctions that plagued voters during Tuesday's primary. In our last podcast, which I highly recommend everyone check out, Gabriel Sterling, the chief operating officer for the Secretary of State's office, blamed poor planning by the counties, especially Fulton, and he said the state had done its job in training. 150 counties pretty well got it figured out. One county, Fulton, really did, as we have gotten used to over the decades, drop the ball. Well, Speaker Ralston spoke with WABE's Emil Moffitt, and he said, look, the state does have a role in training, and they're going to take a look at whether that role was fulfilled during the primaries. And Brian, the speaker more directly contradicted the Secretary of State's office when he told Emil there were problems all over the state. And here's what he had to say. I know that much of the focus has been on Fulton De- uh, County and to a little bit lesser extent DeKalb. But this was all over the state. I mean, we were getting reports from, from northeast Georgia, from southeast Georgia, from all regions of the state yesterday about uh, these kind of problems. And and so, you know, it it was not limited just to the metro area. Brian, this isn't the first time that there's been some friction, if you will, between Secretary Raffensperger and the Speaker, isn't it? Yeah, you know, the Speaker has been a vocal uh, critic at times and has been on different sides of the election schedule when the Secretary of State was pushing back the date, um, and when we were moving more toward a mail-in ballot system. And look, there's no easy answers here for either side. I'm fine with the speaker and the legislature looking into the problems that we had, because we're going to need a unified voice moving forward to fix these problems by November, or we're going to have even bigger problems. I mean, we're going to have a turnout that was significantly larger than the large turnout we had on this Tuesday. So the infrastructure is going to have to be much stronger or the problems will be much worse. And you'll probably have more mail-in ballots, too, on top of the in-person turnout, which will be bigger. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing that we have discussed here on the podcast over the last few months, I have said repeatedly, we are going to have significant problems on June 9th. Just be ready for it. What we don't know is what are those problems going to be? Well, now we know. You know, there was no way to train workers in person. You had to do it over Zoom conferences, other uh, web conferences. And you're talking about a population of people where the average age of poll workers is 70 years old. So not exactly the most technologically savvy generation. And of course, many of them 
just didn't show up on Tuesday. They were scared about getting COVID, which is certainly understandable for vulnerable groups. So lots of things to look at. Let's hope that come November, some of these issues are a little different. They were not as worried about the spread of COVID, that people are more familiar with these new machines. And some of the issues that I heard about on Tuesday had to do with things that we weren't necessarily talking about, but they combined precincts in some instances. There are cases where the machines intended for one of the precincts ended up going to the other precinct because they were all in the same location. Nobody, nobody knew that they were different and the cards wouldn't work. So it was just a, a bevy of problems. Look, this was a trial run. It's going to be bigger in November. We've got a lot of work to do. But here's why I take issue with this whole narrative that the Secretary of State should be let off the hook. And I know, I know Brian's not suggesting that, but I'm just about to give you a few examples that were his responsibility. Number one, he went out and he charged the taxpayers of Georgia $100 plus million for new voting machines that, quite frankly, did not work. Since January of 2019, he has been traveling around the state telling people that with these new voting machines, we're not going to have voting problems. The second thing he dropped the ball on was, yes, let's cut him a little slack because COVID-19 did impact a lot of things with the Secretary of State's office. But he was in charge of making sure that once he made the fundamental decision to release a million plus applications for people to apply for absentee ballots, he does have the shared responsibility to make sure that people actually get their absentee ballots in the mail so they can fill them out and make sure that their votes are counted. I know hundreds of people that traditionally vote early or traditionally vote absentee, but because they were waiting on their absentee ballots to be mailed to them, and they were sort of like, okay, you know what? I'm, I don't want to go for early because I'm waiting on the absentee ballot to get here. You saw probably about 25% of more people that don't traditionally vote on election day that had to go out and stand in those long lines. The last thing I'll say is this. Speaker Rawson is absolutely correct. The Secretary of State's office is responsible for training the trainers. And if you knew after I warned you, and this is why I'm going to take a look credit, Brian, I hope you back me up. Remember when we first started talking about postponing these election dates and looking at different things for COVID, I said on this podcast, the one thing that no one is talking about is that some of our most dependable workers are people in the elderly community. And what are you going to do about that? And how are you going to start recruiting? Now, he did make an effort to do so. And so I think that all these things were preventable, Dennis. I do. I do think that, the, yeah, the combined precincts and stuff like that, all right, that's, that's something that the Secretary of State's office probably couldn't control. And the last thing is they go out with this guy, Mr. Sterling, who had a sole mission to just defend the Secretary of State, which I thought that the Secretary of State could have just struck a different tone. You know, we're in a very tribal situation right now in our country, and particularly in our state. And to come out and attack two of the most democratic counties to sort of say that it was only their fault and you're going to launch an investigation, I would have encouraged the Secretary of State to say something like this. This is a shared responsibility. While I am not directly responsible for everything that happened today, I'm going to work with these counties, not just Fulton and the cab, because as Speaker Rawson said, this happened all over the state. So I'm going to find how, how I can work with these counties to make sure going forward in this runoff that these problems don't happen again. The Secretary of State is the one who really caused a lot of the tension, and he's the one, based on his response to the problem, which he does have a shared responsibility to solve, it was his response and how he wanted to launch the investigation. And then lastly, I think what's going to come out in these hearings, you're going to find out that there's not much communications between the county officials and the state. And I know Mr. Sterling said that there were emails that were going back and forth, but the Fulton County election supervisor sort of contradicted that claim. And so I think a lot of things that have been going on for decades with the Secretary of State's office and these county official election office are going to really come to the forefront. And I think we're going to be very shocked to find out how the lack of communication really caused a lot of these problems. One quick final thought on this, and I'll start with Brian. The Secretary of State on the day after the primary did issue a statement saying he's going to work with the counties, but he also doubled down on his argument that it's just a few of them that had problems. And then he added his trained law enforcement officers 
will look into what happened in Fulton County, and he asked the legislature to pass a bill to allow the state to intervene and look into failing elections offices, presumably with that law enforcement push behind it. That's an awfully strong statement to put in right after you say, oh, we're going to work with the counties. I do think that we have got a antiquated system here in Georgia with 159 county elections offices. When the Secretary of State's office says that these are locally driven enterprises, that's true. And that's how the system is built up. And it makes it really difficult to know sometimes where the lines of responsibility are drawn. And we've seen this over time. And whenever there's a problem, the counties point at the state and the state points at the counties. You know, some of these counties, you're talking about very resource deprived areas, places where it's going to be hard to get what you need to run an election effectively, that having state support would be welcome. That doesn't explain what happened in Fulton. It is far from resource starved. And the problems in Fulton began long before election day with people requesting ballots to mail in back in early April and then never receiving them. And I mean, not at the last minute, never. They never came in. Uh, Including the mayor of Atlanta. Yeah, that's, that's something fundamentally broken. And I don't think that there's a lot of faith amongst the population that the counties were going to do good faith investigations of what happened. I do think there needs to be a third party. And I don't know if it needs to be law enforcement or not. Maybe it can just be the General Assembly, but somebody needs to look into what happened and figure out where the problems are. Yeah, that's my point. Uh, if you're trying to defuse things and try to work together, does it help to, in the next breath, say, we're going to be ready with our trained law enforcement folks to come in and intervene in election offices that are failing? I don't know how, how hostile it is because it's not like anybody's going to get perp walked out of an elections office. I mean, nobody's going to be arrested and put in jail for this. So if that's where we have investigators who can do the forensics involved in figuring out the problems, fine. I think it's just a more of where we have the personnel. Brian is put in a tough position, and I'm put in a tough position because I don't want to be characterized as attacking the Secretary of State for not doing this job. But I think the thing we have to agree here, guys, is that we have known for a long time that these problems exist, right? And this is a Secretary of State who many were starting to talk about based on the amount of money that he spent on telling us he's going to secure the vote. The vote secure, you know, all these images of him kind of like a campaign ad. I mean, let's just call it out, right? He's kind of campaigning. And then to have this happen, Brian, the magnitude of it, I think you would have told him if you were on his staff or a consultant to the Secretary of State's office that in this climate with COVID, peaceful protests, criminal justice reform, hate crimes legislation, where you literally see people in America and Georgia right now just hurting, right? And just really full of emotion. Do you really want to come out and say it the way he said it? And so that's why I'm not going to let him off the hook. He started this. Now, again, the problems were shared responsibilities on both parts. But Brian, not in this climate. I mean, you can't you you can't come out and start pointing the fingers. And I agree with CEO Michael Thurman when he said the buck stops at the top. At the end of the day, you're the Secretary of State. You're in charge of administering elections in the state of Georgia and do your job. And Brian, real quickly, just to the point that we made on the podcast that we just finished, which again, I recommend folks check out. One of the things that I said to Gabriel Sterling was, if things had gone well, you know the Secretary of State would have taken credit for it, and probably at least partly rightly so. Oh, sure, of course. And, and look, I think the truth probably lies in the fact that there's a lot of blame to spread around. There's probably some places where the counties dropped the ball. Obviously, that there is some of that because we saw different performances out of different counties in some places things did go okay. Yes, there were long lines in many places. Uh, Some of that had to do with the fact that only a a small number of voters could get into these rooms at a a time because of disease spread prevention, because of a lack of poll workers who backed out the last minute, etc. But there were places where it went fine. And some of these poll workers, let's defend the poll workers who did not show up. Now, don't get me wrong. If you were scheduled to be there and you didn't show up, that's wrong. And you shouldn't have done that. 
But Brian, let's be honest. A lot of the poll workers who did not return, these are people who I think the average tenure of some of our most seasoned poll workers are anywhere between seven to 10 years. The reason why some of these poll workers did not sign back up to help with the election, Brian, is because they didn't feel safe. They didn't feel safe. They did not want to be put at risk for dying and catching COVID-19. You know, they didn't they didn't feel like there was enough procedures and sort of, you know, arrangements put in place for them to actually be able to work for hours doing early voting on Election Day. So I think we got to get this right, Dennis. I think Speaker Ralston and then I think Michael Thurman need to come together, a Democrat and a Republican, and really hold the secretary of state accountable. And let's make sure we have real testimony at these hearings. I think we need to give the people of Georgia an opportunity to testify at these hearings. And I think the Secretary of State needs to sit in those hearings for every single minute and hear the horror stories that people experience about trying to vote. And that raises the question of whether money will follow to try to fix those problems. That's going to be debated when the legislature comes back. We'll look at that and some of the races where the votes were finally counted. That and more when the political breakfast continues. Stay right here. Support for WABE comes from Capital Good Fund, introducing Georgia Bright Solar Lease Program, a new rooftop solar initiative designed to create pathways to equitable and inclusive solar, sustainability, and monthly savings for Georgians. Learn more at georgiabright.org. And we are back on The Political Breakfast. Pleasure to have you with us. I'm Dennis O'Hare with Democratic strategist Theron Johnson, Republican strategist Brian Robinson. Let's take a look at some of the races that we were talking about in our last podcast, which was taped just a day before this one. So we recommend that you check out some of the discussion on that, particularly when it comes to the 7th Congressional District in Gwinnett and Forsyth Counties, as we ran through the results there. But we have to amend, Theron and Brian, something we said on that podcast, during which at the time it looked like there would be a runoff in the Democratic U.S. Senate race between John Ossoff and Teresa Tomlinson. Turns out that won't be necessary. John Ossoff won outright when more votes came in. Theron, Democrats have to be thrilled with this because now they can focus on David Perdue. But how do they do it? (laughs) John Ossoff. I mean, that guy is a machine. Let's go back to day one, Dennis. As soon as he rolled out his campaign, it was a very upbeat, inspiring video. He immediately received the endorsement of who I believe is the most popular Democrat in the world, and that is Congressman John Lewis. He went out, he registered voters, he did rallies all across the state, and more importantly, Dennis, he raised a lot of money, and he didn't spend it carelessly. He did write the campaign a big check right before the end there and maybe that helped and you were getting you got ahead of me my friend and i got to give credit to brian robinson who said that john ossoff was basically doubling down by loaning his campaign four hundred and fifty thousand dollars. so to beat two qualified well-respected democratic women in this state and to be able to save money not having to go through a very costly runoff election Uh, It's definitely great news for him and his campaign that he should be congratulated. But it's also really good news for uh, Democrats. But I will tell you this, Mr. Ossoff, because I know him and his people, they listen to this podcast. If you look at Senator David Perdue's statement, I mean, it was aggressive. I mean, he came right out as soon as John Ossoff was named the Democratic nominee, basically from paraphrasing, said that he was basically weak on policy that he didn't have a real job sort of inferred and also said that he was just a recipient of his daddy's money. That is just a snapshot of what's about to happen. So you're a strategist. How does John Ossoff plan to take on an incumbent Republican senator with great connections and a lot of money? He's got to start now. I think he's got to stay on the attack. He's got to stay on the offense. He's got to come out specifically and make a contrast between him and David Perdue. Not the obvious contrast is by physically looking at them and sort of knowing that they they basically represent two different generations. They they basically are two different parties. He's got to basically make a compelling 
reason of why he disagrees on issues that Senator Perdue supports. And he's got to basically make it plain and he's got to make sure that he's tough enough because what Senator Perdue is going to do is that he's going to really try to use his incumbency and use his money to define John Ossoff. And they began that process this week. And so I would tell John Ossoff, define yourself even more than you did during the campaign putting John Lewis on uh, campaign ads and running them all across the state of Georgia is not going to be enough this time. Saying that you are, you know, against uh, what happened to Ahmaud Arbery, and it definitely is some corruption uh, in our judicial systems here in Georgia, but you got to go a step further. And I wouldn't disappear. I think that this campaign for November starts this weekend, and he's got to try to figure out how he can nationalize this race, but also have a very Georgia-specific message that's going to help him not only turn out the base, but to try to help him appeal to some moderate voters out there as well. This will be a race to watch nationally. And of course, Purdue is going to be linked to Trump no matter what. It doesn't matter that he's personally linked himself to Trump. Uh, pretty much any Republican down the ballot, a lot of their fate will be determined by how Trump does here. But Senator Purdue, in particular, from very early in the Trump administration, has been Absolutely. one of the president's key allies in the Senate. So he's linked to the president already. You know, many people in Purdue circle will say he's Trump's best friend in the Senate, the one that he talks to the most and bounces stuff off of. And, and they obviously have a great rapport, and that's, that's played some benefit for Georgia. I think that probably helped us get that funding for the Savannah port deepening finally after trying to do it since 1999, literally that long. So uh, it's been beneficial to us. I think Ossoff's going to take a much different tack than he took in the 2017 special election against Karen Handel. I think John Ossoff and Theron and I all know that the strategic mistake that Ossoff made was playing by the old playbook of, I'm a Democrat moderate, I'm bipartisan, I'm not scary, I'm not radical, uh, I'm somebody who will be a decent fit for this district, which is not scary, radical, leftist voting base. Stacey Abrams showed us in 2018 that the path statewide is to be fairly strident in your liberal views. That is how you get that Democratic base revved up. And I think that is John Ossoff's pathway. And I find it interesting. Both of them are going to have to fight for independence. Now, how is that strategy going to play out? Now, I don't, don't mean to contradict what I just said, but Ossoff has to excite the Democratic base and find enough of those independents to come his way. I have seen That's the dilemma for both of them, isn't it? I've seen a market change in Purdue's rhetoric in the last year when I've seen him give public speeches. He has talked a lot about bipartisanship. He's talked a lot about working across the aisle and getting solutions and getting things done and moving past tribalism. His rhetoric has certainly moderated somewhat. But that said, he's still going to have to excite the Trump base. He's going to have to get those guys going. So that's going to be a real tough pathway for both of those candidates to navigate because, look, we are a 50-50 state. And one thing, if I was in Theron's shoes that I would be excited about is that if you look at the numbers of who voted, we had a massive primary turnout. I mean, I've never seen anything like it. There were huge percentages of new voters. And we know... And a lot of them were Democrats. We know that most of them are Democrats. Yes. Yeah, I think roughly about 45% of the people who showed up in the primary, Democratic primary, were, were people what we like to call sporadic voters. These are people who don't traditionally show up in Democratic primaries. We didn't see them in 2016. They didn't vote in 2018. I think on the Republican side, it was roughly about 26%. And so... To echo one quick point where Brian made, John Ossoff, again, is very data-driven, and Senator Perdue has got a very experienced team, and many of those folks, Brian, I know very well, they are both looking at, oh my God, like, all right, so how do we cut into this 45% increase versus the 26%, but Brian made a good point. I think if John Ossoff could go back to that race, he made a fundamental decision to sort of pull back a little bit on some of his criticism against President Trump. The new third time around, John Ossoff, is going to learn from that lesson, and I think he's going to try to take his message immediately to the left while 
we know Senator Purdue can play very well in the middle. He's strong in there. But to Brian's point, he's also got to make sure that he remains a Trump loyalist. But President Trump is the wild card in that respect in one way, because this is different from 2017. The president's numbers in Georgia, while still good, are not what they were in 2017. So that's a message to both candidates, isn't it? And Brian, you know, he laughs when I say this, but I did talk to some of my Republican sources this week. And um, what they're afraid of, and this is interesting, if President Trump is on the verge of possibly losing, or if he's unpopular in Georgia, then Senator Perdue and Senator Leffler and Doug Collins, just to name you know, two people who's running for one senator, they run the risk of not necessarily being able to be close to a unpopular president state. And then here's where it gets tricky. There's a slim possibility that if he loses Georgia or if he barely wins, that we could pick up two U.S. Senate seats. And then that will give us the majority in the Senate. And so I'm telling you right now, Brian and his Republican friends, they're going to social distance this weekend and they're going to have their mask on with their flip flops on and their Georgia uh, shirts on with their little visors. And they're going to be sitting outside somewhere strategizing like, guys, how do we get through this? Because the dynamics have totally changed. And real quickly, Brian, because of what Theron said, with two seats up, you know that John Ossoff is going to have a lot of outside help from the National Democrats. Oh, certainly. We've been on the Democrats' target list for a long time. And through folks like Stacey Abrams and Lucy McBath, we've become a favorite destination for very liberal California and New York money. They seem to be extremely interested in Georgia politics over the last couple of years. So Theron says I don't give him enough credit. I agree with what Theron was saying. I do. And I say that as a wake-up call to Republicans, that we have a fight on our hands. What I saw Tuesday, the numbers that I saw Tuesday were very concerning. Let's look at the Supreme Court race for the incumbent Justice Charlie Bethel. These are not normally partisan affairs. They're not that highly contested. When they are, they sometimes make national news like they did in Wisconsin. Well, and and Leo Ward Sears years ago faced a very partisan challenge, uh, and Justice Carol Hunstein faced a partisan challenge. But you're right; normally, that yeah, happen. you certainly don't see you know razor tight margins. And Charlie Bethel is by no means a firebrand or controversial figure. He's he was endorsed by the most prestigious bipartisan leaders in the state, and it came down to a razor tight margin. And I think a lot of it is. The challenger, Beth Beskin, who's a moderate Republican who served in the General Assembly, made a case in the metro areas against Kemp and against the, the process that kept her from running for another seat on the, on the court because they worked it out for Kemp to make an appointment. And even though she was a Republican, you could see a lot of Democrats going to support her there. And so in that race, which was very low profile, not a ton of money spent, much less than the millions that will be spent on these Senate races, it came down to basically a few percentage points. So Ossoff and Purdue race will have a different strategy than the other race, though. Ossoff and Purdue both have to accept their base while getting independence, which we just discussed. Different scenario for Kelly Leffler and Doug Collins. They're in a de facto Republican primary within a jungle general. So they got to beat each other, not the Democrat. And just hope the Democrat doesn't get over 50% and it goes into a January runoff. And so you're going to see them be much, much closer tied to Trump, talking about Trump a lot more. You'll see Purdue talking about Trump less and talking more about his record and setting him apart and him being effective for Georgia, et cetera. Different calculation for Leffler and Collins. Very good point there, and uh, we're going to run through a couple of the other races real quickly here. As we mentioned, we talked about the 7th Congressional District, that Republican primary especially, in our last podcast. Please check it out. But Theron, let's turn to House District 13, which covers Douglas County, parts of Fulton Cobb, Clayton Fayette, and Henry counties as well. Incumbent veteran Congressman David Scott had a real scare, just barely survived getting uh, the nomination without a runoff, despite a challenge from a couple of uh, contenders, including former state representative Keisha Sean Waits, who came very close to pushing him into a runoff. Theron, I'll start with you. And then, Brian, what's the message here to Congressman Scott? 
think the message here to Congressman Scott is, is that he's got to take this very seriously. He's got to look at the sort of the precinct by precinct breakdown to figure out are there certain areas in his congressional district where they may have been some generational divide or maybe some demographic shifts. And he's got to really figure out where are the areas that uh, Keisha Waits did very well at. And I think that going into his next reelection, you will see him sort of amp up his constituent services in these areas. But I think this is also a wake up call to all incumbents in Georgia, because this was a change election. You know, unfortunately for David Scott, he was able to survive this change election. But I do think that going forward, he's going to have to figure out how do he build a new coalition within his congressional district. Brian, that's an interesting point, not just for Congressman Scott, but for either incumbents or political veterans who lost in some of these Republican primaries as well. We saw a lot of establishment folks get taken down or come close to getting taken down on Tuesday. And there seemed to be a lot of primary challenges against Democrats in the General Assembly, which is very rare. I think what happened to David Scott is not isolated at all. And he has been in office for a very long time. I mean, he's been in Congress since 2003, and he was in the General Assembly for, I think, 30 years uh, uh, before that. I mean, so this guy's been around a long time. And there is going to be this push uh, from this younger Democratic generation, which does have different values, which is in a different place politically than where David Scott, who traditionally has been fairly moderate, more in the Andrew Young mold than what the Democratic base is today. So this is part of the churn. This is part of what happens. I mean, you're seeing some of the same things happen on the Republican side. You look at the 9th Congressional District where Matt Gertler emerged as the top vote getter up there. This is somebody who has voted no on every single piece of legislation that's come before him in the General Assembly. That district has had very conservative but very effective representation for a long time. Nathan Deal, Doug Collins, no one could say they were moderates, right? They were hardcore, but they were sensible. They got things done. They were respected. And uh, I think if we go with somebody like, like Matt Gertler up there, uh, it's going to make the representation for the district less effective, and it's going to make our delegation less relevant. Let's take a look at a couple of local races real quickly. One, the Fulton County District Attorney's Office, as long as we're on the subject of incumbents. D.A. Paul Howard now faces a runoff against one of his former assistants, Fannie Willis, who worked for 16 years in the D.A.'s office. She actually finished first, Theron. Where does D.A. Howard go from here? How does he stay in office? This is very concerning for District Attorney Paul Howard, but I don't think he's surprised by it. If you look at what Fonnie Willis was able to do along with Christian Y. Smith, they represented sort of the change electorate that we talked about just now. If you go back and particularly look at Christian Smith campaign, he was probably the most progressive person in this race for Fulton County DA. And so he garnered about 23% of the vote, whereas Fonnie Willis got 42 and incumbent district Paul Howard got 35. What Paul Howard has got to figure out now is going into this runoff, how does he compete with the amount of money that Fonnie Willis displayed that she was able to raise in this first race? I know Brian predicted that he was going to lose. He didn't lose, but he's in a very tough runoff. But I would tell you, if Mr. Howard is not on the phone, or in a social distance, safe way at the home of Christian Smith, trying to basically beg him for his endorsement and beg him to support his campaign. I think he's making a colossal mistake because I think that Mr. Smith is going to really have a big role to play on where do his 23% of voters go uh, in this runoff. And so I do think that this race is going to be very close. But if you're Fonnie Willis right now, you're feeling good with 42 percent of the vote. However, there is still room for Paul Howard to grow his electorate. He's just got to figure out how does he raise the money to compete with Fonnie based on the money she raised the first time and who will pick up the endorsement and support of Christian Smith. For an incumbent to finish second in the first round and then go into the runoff where your challenger got too close into the mid 40s. It is extraordinarily difficult to 
win that runoff. So he's in a very bad spot right now. I predicted he was in a lot of trouble. I was right. I still think that he is in a lot of trouble. And the chances of the third challenger, the one who didn't make the runoff, endorsing the incumbent that he thought needed to be replaced is unlikely. That doesn't make a lot of sense. That said, runoffs are bizarre occurrences. You simply never know what's going to happen. You can't make too many predictions because you don't know who's going to show up, particularly in August. But if it's a large turnout, the DA will go down. Let's move quickly to Gwinnett County because there's a race for commission chair shaping up. David Post won the Republican nomination outright in a three-person field. And as we speak, there are a couple of votes still out there on the Democratic side. Nicole Love Hendrickson is very close to winning the nomination without a runoff, but she could face Desmond Nembhard in a runoff. That, as we speak, still undetermined. But let's look at the more general question. Is this the time, and Brian, I'll start with you, where Democrats have a legitimate chance of flipping Gwinnett County after years of having a Republican chair now that Charlotte Nash is leaving? The numbers are very clear on that. In 2018, Stacey Abrams won Gwinnett County by 16 points. That's not even a competitive county anymore. You know, Hillary Clinton won it in 2016. So you're seeing Democrats firmly in control numbers-wise in Gwinnett. If you look back at current chairman Charlotte Nash's re-election in 2016, here's someone who is respected, competent, has done a good job, not controversial. And in her re-election, she won 51 to 49, despite the fact that she had significant financial advantage. Her challenger spent basically no money. He just had a D behind his name, and that was enough to get him within a few votes of becoming chairman. So yeah, I think that Democrats have to feel like the favorites going into any general election in Gwinnett right now. You know, one challenge for Republicans isn't trying to win Gwinnett in statewide elections. It's turning out the Republican vote that is there and minimizing the margins that are there. In statewide, Democrats are giving 80 plus percent of DeKalb County. That's what Democrats are getting. And it's getting higher and higher in Gwinnett. Those numbers are too big. So it's going to be places where Republicans need to start making inroads. I think what we saw in Gwinnett County is, is a very high turnout. Um, it was a very competitive race on the Democratic side with a lot of good candidates. But I do feel that based on the 2018 numbers and based on uh, the turnout thus far, I do think we have the unique opportunity to uh, elect a Democrat as the chair of the uh, board of commission in Gwinnett County. Kind of an abrupt transition here, but let's look at the continuing battle against the coronavirus. Brian Public Health Commissioner Dr. Kathleen Toomey told some state senators in the budget writing panel that furloughs and other cuts to resources would hurt the efforts to fight the coronavirus in Georgia. And for a department that's already faced a lot of skepticism for the way it gathers data, the way it reports data on cases and deaths, won't the budget cuts make it harder for them to maintain the confidence of the public it's trying to reach, even though everybody knows this is a tight budget year? This is something that I have talked about here a lot. There's not a lot of fat to cut in the state budget, and we can't deficit spend. And so in times of crisis, we don't have this ability to have a surge in spending the way that the federal government does. Even before the crisis, we were talking about cutting 4 to 5% from these state budgets, and I saw agency heads going nuts about it, even at that much lower level, because you're cutting muscle, not fat, in the state budget. I worry about DPH because of its ongoing emergency responsibility. I worry about the Department of Labor because of its ongoing emergency responsibility. If we're going to make exceptions, I think those are two places to make the exceptions. And full disclosure, my wife works for the Department of Labor and is doing a lot of this unemployment claim stuff. But that doesn't mean that Schools aren't important, that law enforcement's not important, that defect social workers aren't important. All of those things are important. I just think that right now, at least for the next few months, 
we have to safeguard the two things that are being driven by this crisis, and that is health and labor. I think the one thing we need to point out too, Dennis, is that we've all seen a national reports that numbers are going up in other states. And so we got to start off by just being honest by that. Thank God. And I, and I say that in a very cautiously optimistic tone that we haven't seen that spike here in Georgia, but we must let our listeners know that there are still people who are testing positive for COVID-19 and we still have deaths. And so while and hospitalizations. You know, and I was going to get to that. And then you look at these numbers are still growing. So I say all that to say that this is just not the time, to Brian's point, where we can really cut the services that we need. If we, we need these workers. We need these services. We need these, these minds, these great minds waking up every single day to make sure that we are in a preventive posture for this next spike that a lot of medical experts say that we're going to have here. But I agree with Brian. I think health and labor has got to be paramount. It's got to be at the on the minds of every single legislator coming in. But the problem we have, guys, is that how do we do it? Because revenue's down. The governor's already said we got to cut. And so I think starting next week when the session reconvenes, you're going to see that, if not discussed in the first day, I, I had a conversation with the speaker, David Rawson's chief of staff, earlier this week and was talking to him about it. And I can tell you that there's a sense of urgency that I heard in his voice about making sure that the speaker is communicating pretty much daily with the Lieutenant Governor and the different department heads along with the governor's office to make sure that they're all on the same page and looking at spending in the budget. Also on the minds of every legislator as they reconvene is the continuing push for reform in policing, the possible future of Confederate statues that the state owns, and there's a law protecting those right now, a hate crimes bill, all of this driven by the movement following the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis. Theron, I'll start with you. Which is going to bubble to the top as the legislature comes into session? Because that's a lot right there. Well, you know, again... I'll say this with a smile on my face, Brian. I talked to some of my Republican friends this week, and I think what you're going to see is the state Senate come with some very innovative solutions around the hate crimes bill. I do think that there are going to be several suggestions that are going to be made to strengthen the bill. And then there's also going to be a perception certain things that we really needed in the bill. So you're, seeing, you're going to see a robust discussion on the hate crimes bill. And I think this will be a unique opportunity for some of these state senators who are worried about whether or not they're going to lose their seats in November to really make sure that they look at the data that a majority of Georgians believe that we need hate crimes legislation in this state. And then you're going to also have a, a broad conversation about policing. I was very honored this week to be selected by Mayor Bottoms to co-chair her use of force council. But I do think that the Senate and the House, but particularly the Senate, starting these two important conversations around hate crimes, around you know enforcement, police officers. You got to make sure that you give people an opportunity to be heard and you come to the conversation with a level of sensibility and understanding that there are high emotions. And so one little thing that you say can and will be used against you, I can tell you the left and the middle and progressives and activists and organizations are fired up about this. And so you're definitely going to see, I think, those two highly discussed very early on next week. And very quickly, with those at the top of the agenda, do you think the future of Confederate statues and monuments will, because of the press of everything else, move down the list? It's going to move down the list a little bit, but it's going to come up. I can tell you, my hometown of Athens, I grew up there. I spent 18 years, and Brian, correct me if I'm wrong, but there's an ongoing debate right now with Mayor Kelly Gerst about beginning the conversation of removing a Confederate monument that sits on Broad Street, directly in the middle, right near the arches. And again, I say as someone who lived in Athens for 18 years, I was aware that there was this double barrel cannon that also sits on the grounds of City Hall. And I remember my grandfather, before he passed away, sort of giving me the history that that was a part of the Confederate monument. But this other monument, and I don't know the name of it, I apologize to our listeners, is coming up. But here's the challenge, Dennis. These local leaders are 
having conversations about monuments and removing them that are on state property. And so the legislature is not going to really want to get into a back and forth about removing monuments that are on state properties. However, I do think that the local governments are going to be heard and they're going to be given an opportunity to make their case of why they think they should be removed. Brian, that's a lot in one dose here. Hate crimes, law enforcement reform, and monuments and memorials. But which of those do you think the legislature is going to put at the top of the list? The legislature is not going to take up anything to change the law on monuments. I think what you're going to see over time at least until Democrats take over the General Assembly, whenever that happens in the future, if that happens in the future. Yeah, this, these will be locally driven decisions. There may be an effort at some juncture to devolve that decision-making down to them. One thing that I have said uh, for 10 years, and this really started during my time in the governor's office, where I said in a staff meeting, hey, we need to have a statue of MLK on the Capitol grounds. It's absolutely absurd that a state with such a rich African-American history and so many nationally distinguished African-Americans who call themselves Georgians, that we have an overwhelmingly white representation in our art on these sacred grounds that represent us all. And the MLK statue was a major step forward on that. But one thing that we cannot get behind, even if you are for saving the Confederate monuments as cultural importance, uh, as artistic importance, whatever your argument may be. My thing has always been, we have an overrepresentation of people who are known to be slave owners or who have fought for the institution of slavery, people who are the most fierce defenders of Jim Crow. We took off the Tom Watson statue of the Capitol grounds a few years back under Governor Deal. No one made a peep about it, really. There's focus this week on the statue of General Gordon on his horse on the Capitol grounds, which is just outside the, my old window when I was in the governor's office. He, of course, is known as one of the founders of the KKK in the state of Georgia. So even if you want to say these are nuanced people, there's more to them than just those racial issues, we need to do a better job of representing the totality of our history. But we don't have that around the state. And I think that perhaps we can navigate some of this by trying to add whether or not we subtract from our menagerie of sculptures and paintings, et cetera. Do you think, though, that the statues and memorials issue will supersede, if you will, on the priority list, the issue of hate crimes and law enforcement reform? No. I don't think the monument thing is going to come up in this short session. You've seen very interesting developments in the state Senate. There were uncertainties about where the Republican caucus was going to be on this for weeks now. The chairman of the Judiciary Committee, Jesse Stone, has not necessarily been in favor of this uh, in, in the past, so he, he could have been a major roadblock. But then you had the lieutenant governor, who is the titular head of the state Senate, come out this week and say, not only do I support hate crimes legislation, I want something that is stronger than what we have on the table right now. He said, I talked to an African-American gentleman who said this was going to be a really weak law relative to what other states have. He said, why would we want to pass a weak law? Let's pass something much stronger. Now, I don't know that that's where his caucus is going to be on that, but nevertheless, it is notable because it was such strong language. And you see the lieutenant governor delving into this issue. And of course, the speaker has been ardent in his support of getting something passed. That said, he's in a different spot than Duncan because he said, pass the bill that we've already passed so that we get something done and then perhaps we can strengthen it, improvement next year, but let's just do something. So I think there's a lot of momentum for it now. Obviously, the business community came out with a very strong statement this week. And, and on that, may I add congratulations to my friend, Darren's friend, Katie Kirkpatrick, who was named this week as the new head of the Metro Atlanta Chamber. Huge news. I'm so proud of her. She's going to do an awesome job. And she is somebody who's been leading on this hate crimes legislation as well. Two quick things on that. First, congratulations to Katie for getting this job. I do think, Brian, you do need to encourage her to diversify her, her team. Uh, and diversify her external affairs lobbying team. I think we live in an Atlanta now that's different, uh, and it needs to be resembled at the Georgia Chamber. And, I, and I'll be more than happy to tell her that as well. But to the interview with Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, I watched that interview on CNN, and I agree with Brian. I think that Lieutenant Governor did an outstanding job 
talking about values and talking about why he's been able to listen and learn more about this hate crimes bill and how he wants to go further. And so that's why I said earlier, I think you're going to see some brave state senators on the Republican side come out and sort of speak very publicly about this hate crimes bill and also going forward to try to bring Georgia together. And that's it for this week's Political Breakfast. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Dennis O'Hare. Brian Robinson is a Republican strategist, communications consultant, and former deputy chief of staff for Governor Nathan Deal. Democratic strategist Theron Johnson is a public affairs and government consultant and former national southern regional director for the Obama 2012 campaign. Thanks so much to you both. All the best to your families. Thank you, Dennis. Thank you, Dennis. And you can follow us on Twitter. Brian is at Lord Tinsdale. That's T-I-N-S-D-A-L-E. Theron is at Theron Johnson. And I'm at D-E-N-I-S-O-H-A-Y-E-R. And we welcome the return of the Political Breakfast Gold Dome Scramble podcast. Lisa Rayum and the WABE reporters have all the latest from the legislature every Monday during the session. And don't forget our podcast with up-to-the-minute information on the coronavirus. It's called Did You Wash Your Hands? with Sam Whitehead as your host. And if you like this show, please subscribe. You can do that wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to rate us. That's a great way to make sure other people can find us. We'll be back in your feed and in your head soon with more nourishing political conversation. Be sure to join us. Have a great and a safe week. Sounds Like ATL is a music documentary series that takes an in-depth look at the artists amplifying Atlanta's famed music community. Built around a desire to highlight Atlanta's diverse and world-renowned music scene, each episode features unforgettable, intimate musical performances by fresh new musical guests, each with exclusive interviews about the stories behind their music. Listen to Sounds Like ATL Saturday evenings at 7 on WABE and WABE.org. The world has changed from shifts in power to a mental health crisis. So with all this social change, how do we balance the human desire for empathy, the business need for productivity, and the hope to make an impact in our community? This is a new podcast, The Social Impact Leader. I'm Jeff Schinnebarker. Join me as we explore people doing work a little different. Available every Wednesday at wabe.org forward slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. W-A-B-E.